Hello and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 53, Lazarus Rising. Welcome back to the show. Now, at the end of last year, we did a couple of episodes about extinction and rediscovery. Paradise lost, knights regained, and it got me thinking about Lazarus taxa. Fancy name, it refers to a species, an animal, that was presumed to be extinct, only to be rediscovered, still alive, sometimes decades or even centuries after its last sighting. Lazarus, of course, from the biblical story of Lazarus of Bethany, who Jesus resurrected four days after his death, awfully obliging of him. Well, as it turns out, Lazarus isn't the only chap that can come back from the dead. Over the years, there have been numerous stories of species that were thought to be long gone, only for them to turn up alive and well. Maybe the most dramatic example of an animal resurrection was the coelacanth, an especially ancient variety of fish. They were thought to have gone extinct 66 million years ago. We'd only ever seen these fish as fossils. But then, living ones were caught in 1938, swimming around off the coast of South Africa. These fish are so ancient, they're actually more closely related to us people than they are to modern fish. So, their story is pretty wild. But this is Bird of the Week, not Fish of the Week. And so in this episode, I'll tell you the story of three birds that were thought to be long gone, only for them to come back. The blue-eyed ground dove, the Bermuda petrel, and the tuckahay. So join me as we raise the dead. It's not a zombie thing. Bird of the Week. So let's start our journey with the bird that was thought to be extinct for the shortest period of time and build our way up from there. And coming in at a measly 75 years in the grave, we have the blue-eyed ground dove. Now, for all you Yu-Gi-Oh fans out there, don't confuse this pigeon with the blue-eyes white dragon. This is less a dual monster and more of a bird. Um, Are there any Yu-Gi-Oh fans out there from the early 2000s? Nope, uh, is it just, just, just me? So let's take this one step at a time. Who is the blue-eyed ground dove? Well, for my money, they're one of the most beautiful pigeon species we have. You all know I'm biased towards pigeons. Aggressively pro-pigeon. But no kidding, they are a sweet and rather handsome bird. So to start off with, they are little, only about 15 centimetres, 6 inches long. Their head is a rich, warm chestnut colour that slowly fades into a cream down near their feet and butt. Their wings are a cinnamon grey, and they've got a pair of pink feet. I I mean, it, it would be strange if they had feet that came in anything more or less than a pair. But the real eye-catching feature is indeed their eyes. Another pair, this time deep sapphire blue. And what is interesting is on their wings they have a couple of spots of that same deep almost lapis blue as their eyes. So, really beautiful, bejeweled little bird. Now, you will recall from our pigeon episode that there are two broad groups of pigeons, the seed feeders and the fruit foragers. The ground dove is one of the seed feeders, and one of the more picky seed feeders at that. Now, where do you find these little guys? Well, they're native to Brazil, but 
they're not a bird of the Amazon. They favour open savannas and grasslands, an area known as the Cerrado. It's a kind of tropical savanna south of the Amazon. However, the ground dove is rather picky about where they live, and in part, this is why they are such a rare bird. It is speculated that even before their disappearance, they were never common, because they need a few different features to come together for them to thrive. So while they like the savannah, it's a particular type of savannah, one where there is a prevalence of white sand in the soil. Why does a dove care about what sort of sand they're flying over? I'll tell you. So the white sand savannah is an unusual environ, but this kind of soil mix supports three or four specific types of grass seed that the dove likes to feed on, as well as three or four other specific plants that they use for nesting material. And if you don't have these grasses, you won't get these birds. On top of that, they also need ready access to fresh water. Now we know that these factors all have to come together for the dove to thrive. So in one sense, it isn't surprising that they're rare, because habitat like this just isn't that common. When you throw in people turning grassland into farmland, you've got yourself a real problem. The blue-eyed ground dove was last reliably sighted in 1941. And as the decades ticked over, eventually they were believed to be extinct. But that was until 2015, when they were spotted again. Ornithologist Raphael Bessa was out conducting unrelated fieldwork when he heard a high-pitched bird call he wasn't familiar with. Let's have a little listen. After hearing that whoop-whoop, Bessa had an inkling it was something unusual, so he recorded the call and played it back and was shocked when a blue-eyed ground dove flew down to investigate the sound. It was doubly surprising because Bessa was miles from where the last known habitat of the ground dove was known to be. So that was exciting news, but the initial euphoria didn't last long after it was assessed that there were only 16 of these little guys left. That is a precariously low population, which comes with its own set of issues. You see, when there are only a few individuals of a species left, you get a problem called inbreeding depression. And there, inbreeding is something that should make us all depressed. Just ask the Habsburgs. This occurs when closely related individuals are forced to repeatedly breed with each other, and it can have bad genetic consequences. Recessive genes that are harmful can begin to express themselves. They can become more susceptible to diseases, and in the worst case scenario, it can lead to infertility, which is depressing, inbreeding depression. What it means for conservationists is that they have to be careful about which individuals breed with each other, at least in situations where that can be controlled, so as to ensure you have the greatest genetic diversity possible. But for the blue-eyed dove, that was a problem for later. In that moment, it was clear. Urgent action was needed to first protect the small remnant of habitat where they were still living. An organisation, Save Brazil, along with the American Bird Conservancy, came together to buy up the land and make it a national park. This happened in 2018 and is called the Boto Marine State Park, which is good. There are issues with getting people to respect the intent of the park, but it's a good first step. But this is not enough. 
One of the issues when you're talking about small populations in limited locations is that if anything happens to their home, like say a big old fire were to breeze on through, which Brazil is increasingly becoming prone to, well, it could wipe out the whole species in a single day. Another issue is that very few of the dove chicks were even making it to adulthood because the chicks were often falling victim to predation. To guard against this, Save Brazil decided to try and establish a captive breeding population as a backup should the worst happen in the wild. Now, there are pros and cons with this idea. Pro, if you remove an egg from a nest early enough, the parents will just lay another egg. This presents a great opportunity to take a bird into captivity while not really impacting their wild breeding or population. In fact, it is a strategy to increase the population faster than they would naturally reproduce because two chicks are being raised, one in captivity, one in the wild, instead of just the one. But one of the major cons is that pigeons feed their babies pigeon milk. You will remember this fact from our pigeon episode. Parent pigeons secrete a substance from their crop that they feed to their babies for the first few days of their life. That delicious, sweet, fatty, delectable pigeon milk. Would you believe that until recently, it was impossible to raise a pigeon chick in captivity without its parent to provide milk? Wild, I know. Without that milk, they just can't survive. But a few years ago, biologists working at the Toledo Zoo managed to develop an artificial substitute, essentially baby pigeon formula. So they were keen to give this a crack and use it down in Brazil. But because this had never been done before, the researchers were conscious that the stakes for failure were high. So before they got the blue-eyed ground dove, they practiced raising the chicks on one of their close, more common relatives, the ruddy ground dove. They managed to refine their feeding technique, got their confidence up, didn't lose any of the ruddy doves, and so for the first time just last year, they were ready to give it a go with the real thing. And they had success. Save Brazil successfully raised two chicks from incubation to adulthood in 2023, and they are the start of a captive population. This is by no means the end of the story, because... Those two captive birds represent about 12% of the total blue-eyed ground dove population, just to highlight how endangered and rare these little guys are. But it is a start which will hopefully ensure that this beautiful dove will survive well into the future. Bird of the week. Now, our second Lazarus species is the Bermuda petrel, or as it is sometimes called, the cahau. Our dove, as we recall, was missing for 75 years. How does our petrel compare? Well, the Bermuda petrel went unsighted for three centuries. 300 years! That's a pretty stellar game of hide-and-seek. But let's reel it back and see who these birds are. Petrels are oceanic birds, kind of like a mini version of an albatross. We will have to do a proper petrel episode one day because they have some fancy features. But for today, our petrel is a grey and white, stormy-looking bird. They're native to the Atlantic Ocean and breed on the island of Bermuda, as their name would suggest. Much like albatross, petrels spend most of their life on the open sea and only return to land to breed. 
After fledging, it normally takes three to four years for males and four to six years for females to reach sexual maturity, at which point they return to the island where they were born to find a mate. They're colony nesters, but they dig burrows to lay their eggs. The females lay relatively large egg, and then both parents share incubation and later feeding duties. As with many seabirds that nest in large colonies on small islands, at one point they had a massive population. But that was until the 1500s, when the Spanish showed up and started using Bermuda as a stopover point on their way to pillage the new world. And I mean, if you're gonna travel halfway around the world to do some pillaging, You want to make sure you've got your eye in, so they practiced a bit of light pillaging on Bermuda first. In 1603, it was reported that the sailors were taking some 4,000 birds a night to replenish their supplies. That's a lot of birds! Then, if that wasn't bad enough, in 1612, the British turned up. Talk about pro-level pillaging right there. They planted a flag, claimed the land, and set up a permanent settlement. Not only did they hunt the birds and steal their eggs for food, but the introduction of rats, cats and dogs, and all-round environmental degradation led to a collapse in the petrels' population. So much so that by 1620, just eight years after setting up their colony, the birds were thought to be extinct. And that would be the belief for the next 300 years. But of course, we know they weren't extinct. Although you do kind of have to wonder how they kept missing these petrels on one small island for hundreds of years. You know, I guess, to be fair, if you're a bird that spends the majority of your life on the vast oceanic expanse of nothingness, you can be hard to spot. And then the fact that this petrel is also rather similar looking to the not overly related Audubon shearwater, it is possible that they were seen but were misidentified as well. Either way, their numbers were absolutely decimated. Classic tale of small island being subjected to radical change, leading to loss of native biodiversity. It's happened many, many, many times. Go back and check out our Tale of Two Islands episode for more information on how islands really get the short end of the stick. But now, we know our little petrel was not dead but it would take a couple of hundred years to work it out. Fast forward to the early 20th century, and a few vagrant birds were found, which showed they were still about somewhere. But it wasn't until 1951, when naturalist Robert Murphy and Louis Morbray discovered seven nesting pairs on one of the tiniest islands in Castle Harbour, just off the main Bermudan Island, that their nesting sites were found, and a proper stock take of the birds could be made. And let me tell you, their stock take was not a rosy one. In total, there were less than 20 birds. As they observed their nesting site that year, they saw that every petrel trick was killed by white-tailed tropical birds, which compete for the same nesting sites. Somehow, the little petrel had survived unseen for 300 years, but now it was clear that without intervention, they were not going to make it much longer. The birds needed a champion, and they found one. Along with Roberts and Louis that day was a 15-year-old boy named David Wingate. The discovery of these long-lost birds inspired him, and after attending university in America, he returned to Bermuda, determined to save the birds. Step one was to deny the tropical birds access to nesting burrows by placing a kind of baffle at the entrance. 
These baffles were shaped so that a petrel could enter, but a tropical bird could not. This was followed by setting up artificial burrow sites to provide the birds more access to nesting locations. This painstaking work saw the petrel population increase from 14 to 36 by the 1960s. These guys are slow breeders, but year on year, they managed to increase the population by about 3%. Which is quite the grind when you're starting from low numbers, but it does all add up, so that by 2019, their numbers stood at 260, give or take. But during these intervening decades, much work had been done to also restore habitat and keep predators like rats away. Maybe the biggest effort has been to transfer the birds to a more secure island. This can be tricky, because as the chicks grow, they imprint on the island where they are born. Sadly, the little offshore island where they were making their last stand was at risk of erosion from hurricanes. If they lost this island, the chance that they would naturally relocate to another was low. But the only way to get them to imprint on a new island was to transfer the chicks to a more secure location and hand-raise them until they were old enough to fledge. The hope was that when they returned, they would come back to the new island and establish a breeding site there. And it worked. As of 2019, 40 or so birds are now breeding on the new island. So yes, it's been decades of hard work to fend off enemies, rebuild homes, and raise chicks in new lands, but the Mamuda petrel, like the blue-eyed ground dove, is hanging in there. Bird of the week. Alright, let's meet our third and final Lazarus bird. And we move from one that was thought to be extinct for 300 years to one that was thought to be extinct for hundreds of thousands then was rediscovered alive, only to go missing for another 50. And that is New Zealand's Tuckahay. Now, at first glance, the Tuckahay looks like a familiar bird. They're a rail, or as some people might know them, a swamp hen. Like the other members of the rail family, they are a large, rotund bird, navy blue on the bottom and forest green on top, with bright red legs and beak. But the Tuckahay is massively oversized, standing about 60 centimetres tall and weighing in at over 2 kilograms. That's 25 inches and 5 pounds. Like many of New Zealand's flightless birds, the Tuckahay seems to have flown from Australia several million years ago and, finding no predators, swapped life in the sky for life on the ground. They also swapped the swamp for the mountains, the Tuckahay lives in the New Zealand highlands, where it feeds on tender grass shoots. They've switched to an all-vegetarian diet, unlike the other swamp hens that feed on insects and aquatic bugs and the likes. Very unusual. It's possible that, just like the ground dove, their preferred habitat played a role in restricting their numbers, even before people arrived. And so, during the last ice age, they probably thrived in the chilly climate, but as the ice began to recede, suitable Takahe habitat would have retreated further and further up the mountains, limiting their numbers. Of course, throw in human habitat destruction, dogs and cats, and that old New Zealand pest, the ferret, and, well, it doesn't look good for the flightless Takahe. Now, as a species of flightless rail, the Takahe is not really all that unusual, the islands of Mauritius, Reunion, Lord Howe, and New Caledonia all had rails that became flightless with a lack of predators. But aside from the odd quirks I've already pointed out, 
The Takahei is different because it has the curious honour of being discovered in the fossil record before a living one was sighted. Their fossilised bones were found in 1847 by collector of dry dusty things Walter Mentel. The bird was formally described at the time, and it was assumed that they are another example of a long dead flightless bird, not unlike the moa. But just two years later, a living bird was found. In 1849, a gang of sealers found and trailed a large, unknown bird that no one had ever seen before. Naturally, they set their dog upon it, and when the dog finally caught up with the bird, it reportedly uttered a loud scream and fought and struggled violently. I mean, I'd like to think I would too. The group caught it and kept it alive for a couple of days before they decided to roast and eat it. Apparently it was delicious. Now, if not for a lucky chance, we may have never learnt this story, but who should have turned up on the scene as they were eating it but Walter Mantell? He came upon them literally while they were eating it and managed to convince them to let him have the skin. That's got to be an odd conversation. Hey, fellas, looks like an odd bird you're eating there. Mind if I take the skin? You mean, I mean, how the heck do you broach that subject with a stranger? Anyway, Walter got himself the skin, and it was realised that this was the same bird that belonged to those fossils he found a few years back. The Takahe wasn't long dead, it was still wandering about the mountains. Over the next couple of years, a few more stray specimens were caught, killed, stuffed, and sent off to various museums around the world. One even went on display next to the dodo at the British Museum, and, like, that just, that just seems like tempting fate to me. And sure enough, following 1898, the bird all but vanished, with only sporadic rumours of sightings thereafter. But, as we saw in our Night Parrot episode, missing birds have a way of stirring the imagination, the thrill of the hunt, a lost relic, a piece of natural history to inspire people to go in search. And so it was, many years later, for local GP Geoffrey Orbell. He'd heard of the long-lost Takahe since he was a child, and dreamed of one day finding them still alive. He gathered up all the information he could find about the confirmed sightings from long ago, and he found an interesting pattern. He noticed that the birds were always sighted on mountains below the tree line during times of heavy snow. He hypothesised that the birds actually lived higher in the mountains and only ventured down when the snow was too deep for them to forage. So he and a couple of friends set off for the Murchison Mountains. On his first expedition, he found footprints and heard an unfamiliar bird call. Even though this wasn't strong evidence, he became convinced that it was the Takahei. And it turned out he was right. On a second expedition, he was finally able to eyeball the bird, trap it, film it, and photograph it. And now there was irrefutable proof that they still lived. Just like the dove and the petrel, the Takahe was back from the dead. But just like our other birds, finding them was only the first step. After all, there's a reason why they went missing in the first place. As is always the case with New Zealand, those introduced feral mammals played havoc with their native birds that evolved without proper predator defences. For the Takahe, though, bizarrely, after it was found, there was a debate about if anything should even be done for their conservation. Maybe just protecting their home would be enough without further intervention. Well, New Zealand tried doing nothing for a few decades, but when the 1980s rolled around, it was clear that the Takahe population was in dangerous decline. Nothing didn't seem to be working, so maybe now it was time to try something. 
action had to be taken. So their first step was gathering up and artificially incubating their eggs to protect them from predators. When they hatched, the chicks were raised by puppets designed to look like parents so the birds wouldn't imprint on their human handlers. And to me, that sounds pretty wild. Can you imagine what it would be like to learn your parents were actually hand puppets? It's like all those years you thought Kermit was your father, only to find out he was a Muppet. Nothing but a piece of fabric. The things we do for conservation. Wild times! But the puppet parents worked, and many chicks were successfully raised. But again, it hasn't been all clear sailing. There was the devastating Stoat Plague of 2007, which reportedly halved the Takahe population. It took nearly a decade for their numbers to recover back to where they were. Now, work these days focuses mainly on predator removal and setting up sanctuaries where the birds can live relatively risk-free. Separate populations have been established on a number of small predator-free islands, so the future is tentatively looking brighter. But for all that work, we're still only talking about 500 birds across the whole country. So yes, there is more to be done. Always more to be done, but hey, at least something is happening. Do nothing, I mean honestly. Bird of the week. In looking at the stories of these three birds, we actually stumble onto a curious quirk in conservation. Here's a fun fact. Did you know that since the year 1500 worldwide, only 902 species, including plants and animals, have been officially declared extinct. Of those, 159 are birds. And yes, I can say officially declared because there is an official organisation in charge of making these decisions. There is always an official organisation. Just like there is one in charge of naming birds, so there is one in charge of deciding when something is kaput. This is the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. And I mean, they do other stuff too, but today, they're the nerds who decide who lives and who dies. Um, well, I, I suppose that should be who's alive and who's died. You know, they're, they're not a fickle dictator. But anyway, our friends at the IUCN only declare a species extinct when there is no reasonable doubt left that the last individual of a species has died which is kind of like proving a negative, something that is notoriously difficult. Actually, proving a negative is exactly what that is, but here's the thing. Right now, there are more than 2,000 species out there that haven't been spotted in over a decade. Now, there's a good chance that they might be extinct, but because of instances like our blue-eyed ground dove and Bermuda petrel, the IUCN is reluctant to make those calls because there are so many examples of animals coming back from supposed oblivion. There is always a chance that one is hiding out there somewhere. Take the ivory-billed woodpecker, last reliably seen in 1944. Just last year there were rumblings to have it finally declared extinct when some maybe grainy photos of it were captured, so it was back to, well, it could still be out there, best not to be too hasty. And look, I have seen those photos, and they are not the clear definitive proof that you really want to hang your hopes on, but hey, we'll take anything. But there really is a big old dose of mustn't be too hasty when it comes to declaring animals extinct. Because what these three stories show is that length of time since last sighting really isn't enough to be sure a species is extinct. 
You'd think 300 years would be enough, but nope, not for the Bermuda petrel. In recent times, we had two other long-lost missing birds turn up. The black-browed babbler was first described in 1850 and wasn't spotted again until 2020. Likewise, a pheasant pigeon in New Guinea was rediscovered after 140 years of being missing in 2022. We thought they were gone. They were not. Now, you might be wondering, well, what does it matter? It's extinct. It is an extinct. We call it extinct. It comes back. We change our mind. Hooray. Everyone's happy. Why does it matter? Us not calling it extinct. Well, it turns out there can be risks to having something declared extinct when it might not be, because it could remove any environmental protections that may be in place, keeping the hidden little buggers alive. So we don't want to do that and risk losing those protections unless we are super duper sure they're gone, because you never know if it's out there lurking somewhere. What I take from these stories is that in a world where we are bombarded by tales of lost species and the destruction of habitats, these stories offer us a glimmer of hope. Nature occupies that paradoxical space of being both fragile and surprisingly resilient. Despite some of our best efforts to really burn the planet down, there are many birds that have persisted. But increasingly, we are seeing that they will only continue to persist with a helping hand. With effort, we can do something to reverse the decline and preserve these birds and their habitats. We have the means. We need only the will. At any rate, I hope you have enjoyed these three stories of birds raised from the dead. Now, next time, I'm going to take you on a trip to South America to meet one of the strangest birds in the world. In fact, they are the avian equivalent of a unicorn. They are the Horned Screamer. And with a name like that, you know you don't want to miss it. Until then, if you want some more bird action, I've got some good news. Our bonus podcast called What's Up With That Bird's Name has just come out, and this week it is all about the petrol. Do they have anything to do with petroleum? Almost certainly not. But for the low, low price of $2 a month, you can find out all about it. All you have to do is swing on over to Patreon forward slash Bird of the Week or one word link in the description to find out more. And if you're feeling especially generous and would like to make a larger contribution, then you too can get a special thank you from me and the show. Just like my good friends, Jill Chalker, Jody Little, Debbie Ho, Darth Fuller, Ashley Scarper, and Richard Clark, the Minty Fresh. And if you would like to receive a bird in your inbox each week, you can drop me a line at weekly.bird at outlook.com. And I will add you to the mailing list where you will get a new bird lovingly delivered to you for free each and every week. I mean, hey, who doesn't want more birds in their inbox? At any rate, thank you for listening, and I hope you will tune in again soon. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. He cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus said unto them, Loose him and let him go.